You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This week on the University Series, we're back in California talking with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox about USC. Dr. Tarbox is the Program Director of the Master of Science in Applied Behavior Analysis Program at the University of Southern California, as well as Director of Research at First Steps for Kids. Dr. Tarbox is the Editor-in-Chief for the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice, and serves on the editorial boards of several scientific journals related to autism and behavior analysis. He has published four books on autism treatment, is the series editor of the book series, Critical Specialties in Treating Autism and Other Behavioral Challenges, and is the author of well over 70 peer-reviewed journal articles and chapters in scientific texts. His research focuses on behavioral interventions for teaching complex skills to individuals with autism applications of acceptance and commitment training inside of applied behavior analysis, and applications of applied behavior analysis to issues of diversity and social justice. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Tarbox. We're here talking with Dr. Tarbox about the USC program. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and can you give us, to start out with, a general overview of the USC program? Sure, absolutely. So uh, we're a two-year program that's 100% in-person, on-campus, brick and mortar, and uh, we keep it small, so we uh, admit about 12 or so, 14 or so students per year, and uh, you take all of your didactic coursework with us in behavior analysis, Uh, with PhD, all of our faculty are PhD level behavior analysts with lots of experience. Um, And then you also, uh, students also get a job in the community at a real ABA agency uh, working in the community. And that's where they get their supervised experience hours. And so they get some group uh, mentorship and supervision from the professors on campus. And then they get uh, one-to-one supervision from BCBAs in the community. Um, and, uh, and then that's, that's basically what you do. So you take classes with us for two years, uh, in the second year of the program, uh, you do, you choose either a capstone or a thesis option, which is the thesis is more oriented towards research. The capstone is more oriented towards practice. Um, and, uh, and then you get your degree and that, that's sort of the big picture. And I know that you kind of brought up group meetings and stuff with faculty members. So I'm going to make sure that you know all your faculty members what who are the faculty members and kind of what are they focusing on right now with research yeah yeah so our faculty um we're very selective with who we hire for our faculty um you know a lot of programs out there sort of will hire anybody uh to sort of teach one class here or there and it's sort of like um they're kind of temporary sort of lone ranger type you know faculty that are you know kind of part of the culture of the program kind of not um, and we uh, don't want to do that I see why a lot of programs do that it's actually just kind of more convenient and more efficient to just hire someone to fill fill a spot when when you need them basically um, but uh, the route that we've chosen to go with our program is to basically take the position that if you're a professor in one of our classes you are a permanent real member of our community of our intellectual community um, and we take that responsibility seriously. So all of our faculty um, uh, only teach at our program. They do not teach at any other programs. And, and they all are either full-time like myself or they're part-time folks that have a real-life full-time job in practice in ABA, whether that's consulting or whatever it is. And then they teach classes for us also. Um, and so our faculty are, uh, I'm the program director. I founded it and I teach uh, the research methods class and I teach the advanced theory class that goes over ACT and RFT and advanced topics like that. Um, and then I also uh, supervise, I, I do the majority of the supervision for the capstone and thesis students. And so I, I do their supervision for their projects. And my specialties are um, teaching cog- uh, sort of advanced quote unquote cognitive skills to kids with autism. So uh, skill, skill areas that the rest of the world thinks are brain functions, uh, but we in behavior analysis treat them as behavior. Uh, so things like uh, executive function skills, planning, working memory, self-management, self-control, uh, uh, perspective taking skills, quote unquote theory of mind skills, things like identifying other people's emotions and intentions, uh, adjusting one's own social behavior and self-managing one's own social behavior based on one's understanding of other people's perspectives. Um, so really advanced uh, 
uh, verbal skills, uh, verbal social skills. Um, and I use relational frame theory as just sort of a useful theoretical tool uh, for how to understand and, and analyze these skills that are really sort of complex, you know, sort of crazy sounding stuff, sounds really mentalistic. Uh, but what we do is we uh, boil it down to behavior, environment, functional relations. What's the antecedent source of control? What are the consequent sources of control? What are the different operants involved? And very frequently, uh, the operants that are involved are uh, involved responding to the relation between stuff. And so uh, RFT is pretty much the only major theoretical work uh, that specifically deals with that type of behavior. So uh, we found RFT to be really useful uh, in helping kind of figure out how to teach those skills. Then my other main area of specialty is in uh, adapting acceptance and commitment training to main, mainstream practice within applied behavior analysis. So using ACT for uh, parent training for parents of kids with autism, uh, using ACT to help teach kids with autism themselves uh, self-management skills and quote-unquote coping skills. Um, and then also uh, one of my favorite new areas is expanding ACT work into other areas outside of autism that BCBAs have a huge potential to work in, and yet we're just not doing a lot of work in those areas. So for example, uh, I've got students doing research on uh, using an ACT-based ABA coaching strategy to just get typically developing adults to exercise more. So we've got people who have you know zero rate of exercise now going to the gym three times a week, and it's changed their life, and it's they're super happy about it, and it's awesome. Um, and then act-based uh, ABA coaching strategies to help people eat more vegetables, for example, right? Just healthier uh, eating and nutrition. So basically like health-related behaviors in people that don't have any particular disorder, just everyday folks like you and me, um, but want to make some kind of important change in a behavior that will, you know, significantly impact their life for the positive. Um, so I'm, really, I'm having a lot of fun with that. And then this is, I don't even know how to say this without it being awkward, but I'm a white guy now trying to do research on diversity and equity and inclusion. So, okay, that's me, but I think it's important. I think that just talking about diversity and inclusion isn't good enough in behavior analysis. If we care about something, we need to do research on it, and we need to show that we can change behavior in socially meaningful ways. Um, so that's what my lab is trying to do. So I have some amazing students, people like Jacqueline, Ramirez and E.E. E. Wang uh, and Zoe Olray, who are figuring out how to use ABA principles and procedures to move things that matter in this area. So for example, Zoe is developing a thesis right now on uh, using uh, behavioral skills training to teach professors how to uh, be better allies when they notice potential harassment happening on campus. So uh, how to stand up and speak up in a way that is productive and professional, but also really effective. Um, so, you know, we all take these like harassment trainings online. If you're in a supervisory position, you have to, but like, do they actually change behavior? Do they work? There's no research. So, uh, so we're developing research to actually evaluate like, okay, will the person actually behave differently now that they've had this training? Um, and it's kind of awkward. We're putting people on the spot and it's, you know, uncomfortable, but I think it's, I think it's worth it. Um, uh, yeah, so that, that is one of my other sort of newer areas of research that I'm really passionate about and that I really love. Uh, then we have uh, Dr. Michael Cameron, and he, his main area of work is consulting with insurance companies and sort of understanding on the bigger picture level um, decision making uh, at the supervisory or sort of BCBA level. So his research and his practical work involves uh, creating decision models, creating, uh, it's actually much more OBME, we were talking about OBM earlier, uh, but uh, creating decision models to help uh, BCBAs sort of guide them through evidence-based uh, practice and uh, making uh, decisions amongst evidence-based procedures, things like that. Um, and so he creates those systems. It's a lot of his technology base. And then he's also, his students are doing uh, research on those systems to actually see like, okay, you can make a decision model, but then does it actually change behavior? Does the BCBA actually use it, first of all? And if they do use it, does it actually make their... Um, let's say for example, does it make their behavior intervention plans that they make uh, more effective or more ethical or more evidence-based? Uh, can a decision model um, improve the quality of supervision that a BCBA is giving their supervisee during supervision meetings? So, uh, so his, his uh, work is very, very interesting. He's uh, addressing uh, issues at that sort of broader supervisory uh, sort of systems level. Um, another area of expertise that he has that's really interesting is um, telemedicine behavioral coaching for treating binge eating disorders. 
Uh, and so he's got some really, really interesting stuff that he's working on with that, where basically he's using an ABA based approach to treat what is, you know, not what we'd normally do in applied behavior analysis. Um, and he's getting some really, really effective results and uh, it's really, really cool stuff. So we've got, um, we also have Dr. Jennifer Harris, who is, uh, she's the founder and the executive director of First Steps for Kids, which is a community-based uh, autism ABA clinic, um, sort of medium-sized and uh, still uh, privately owned uh, and not expanding huge and crazy. Uh, and they, uh, they do just top quality skill acquisition work with young children with autism. Um, and her areas of expertise are in sort of ethics and professional issues. So she teaches our ethics course and does a fantastic job with that. She also developed an introduction to autism course for our undergrads, which is really, uh, has been really successful. Um, oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention what Michael Cameron teaches. He, he kind of is a jack of all trades. He teaches a lot of different classes. He does uh, a lot of the practicum supervision and then also uh, skill acquisition and behavioral interventions classes and all of that stuff. Then we have uh, Dr. Megan Acklin, and she is uh, she does uh, private practice work where she uh, does like sort of outpatient uh, behavioral coaching, uh, again, in sort of unique populations. A, a lot of her clients are just typically developing adolescents who are having a tough time. So it could be uh, they're failing out of school or dropping out of school. It could be that they're having uh, behavior problems at home with their parents. Um, could be that they're getting into, you know, vaping and drug use or something like that. And she's not treating like serious substance abuse disorder. She would refer out for that. But uh, again, sort of basic real life, typically developing adolescent stuff that really could have major potential, um, uh, you know, health uh, implications and then just sort of life outcome implications uh, if not addressed effectively. And so she uses just straight, straight up ABA coaching procedures and then also infuses some act into that as well. Um, and she gets great results with that. And then she's also, and so her classes that she teaches for us, uh, she teaches a variety of stuff. She's teaching principles right now. And then also a skill acquisition, a skill acquisition class uh, that really focuses in on research, the latest research on teaching um, a variety of different skills uh, to kids with autism, but also other populations as well. Um, let's see. And then we have Dr. Amy Fuller, who has a really unique uh, background. She is a board certified behavior analyst and has, is an expert in ABA, but also she got her PhD uh, from UCLA uh, working with Connie Cassery. And Connie Cassery is one of the top art, uh, randomized control trial researchers in autism, but coming from a sort of developmental behavioral background, not a hardcore behavior analytic background. And so uh, Amy has this really great training in this uh, type of intervention called JASPER, which is a joint attention intervention. And it's basically, you know, if you or I looked at it, it looks like natural environment training, like incidental teaching, essentially. But it comes from a more developmental perspective. And so Amy has a really strong uh, developmental background, developmental training, as well as being an expert behavior analyst. Um, so we're really excited to have her as well. And she, she does uh, practicum supervision for the students. And then... Oh my gosh, you guys are just jam-packed. <laughs> well, the, the, well, those are our core ABA faculty. And then we have two classes in our curriculum that are developmental. They're PhD level classes in developmental psychology that our master students take. And they, uh, one of them is in cognitive development, and then the other one is in social development, and they're traditional developmental psychology courses. They're not behavior analytic at all. And the reason why we have our students take those is because it gives us a broader understanding of human development. And so we kind of know like, okay, we've got these incredible tools to change behavior, but what behavior should we change? Like, how do we understand the broader context of human development to make sure that what we're doing when we work with clients is really meaningful in the big picture and not just sort of moving behaviors this way or that way. Um, so uh, uh, the core developmental faculty, Dr. Frank Manis and Dr. Henny Mall uh, teach those courses. So yeah, that's everybody for now. <laughs> Well, and I mean, I think that even taking those types of courses can even give your students this repertoire of, you know, different terms and to make them more, excuse me, appealing to these outside fields that we work with constantly as I well. I totally agree. I totally agree. And start like bridging that gap between some of these other professions and behavior analysis. Totally. And we've got this major PR problem that the rest of the world thinks we're arrogant jerks. And maybe part of it is because we kind of aren't very good at interacting with other professions and we're not doing enough, doing enough right, to reach out. 
so yeah, I, I, I think I totally agree with you. I think it's really important. And that is our students take these courses in developmental psychology so that they can see that psychology is a big field. And it's not just one, you know, psychology is not the only discipline, right? Like you said, there's right. speech and OT and lot, social work, lots of other education. And, you know, all of those folks, even though they might not have our secret sauce, they're in it for the right reason. They're there to help people, you know? So, um, you know, we have a lot to learn from them and, and working as a team is, is going to be good for everybody, including us. I mean, that's the best way to be selfish, even as a behavior analyst, is to help other people and, and reach out outside of our discipline. Uh, it helps everybody. Yep. And I like the term arrogant jerks that you use because, <laughs> yes, I can, I mean, after, you know, now I'm in, like I said, more of a OBM role, but before I was in clinic schools and homes and yeah. especially working in schools, you can completely see how yeah. we can come off as these arrogant jerks because we come in all gung ho and that's not how you win people over. So, totally. <laughs> so yeah. <clears throat> yep. and, it, and it's strange too, because if we think that we're so awesome, then what do we have to prove? You know, we don't, right. we don't need to make sure that everyone else thinks we're awesome too. We need to be like helpful and useful and, and make a meaningful contribution. And if, you know, to the extent that we do that, or at least what I've found is that to the extent that I do that, people generally want to want to have me around and want me to help out. So yeah, I, I really think we could be doing better. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but we have some major, super well-respected people in our field that, model jerky arrogant behavior at conferences you know in you know talks and stuff and I don't know like I, I've probably I'm sure I've been guilty of that too you know like trash talking other disciplines and stuff but you know we should be thinking about that more we, we I think we could all do better in terms of the behavior that we're modeling even just when we're hanging out with each other yeah how does the practicum work you have all of these um, you have all of these faculty and you talked about their research and mm -hmm. that they're supervising these practicum sites. Um, where are your students getting their practicum experience from? Yeah, yeah, great question. So, uh, so what we've tried to do is strike a balance between uh, having enough practicum sites to where students have a variety of places where they can work, um, but also keep it pretty small and pretty well controlled to make sure that our students are getting uh, really top quality experience in, in ABA. Uh, because unfortunately, um, I don't know uh, how one would really quantify this, but I think that the majority of ABA services out there are being implemented at a level of quality that is not acceptable, at least to me and to you know, a lot of other folks uh, that we've been concerned about this for a long time, forever. Uh, and so, yeah, so we basically, we, the faculty, vet each practicum site individually. We carefully evaluate their, uh, their training program for their employees, uh, their service model, their descriptions of how they do things, their decision-making process, um, and most importantly, just the, the amount of supervision and mentorship that the employees get when they work in that organization. Um, and if all of that stuff checks out, then, uh, then we can approve them as one of our practicum sites. So when a student comes into our program, uh, before they actually show up for their first day, they get a list of all the possible practicum sites and we tell them where they're located geographically, what type of clients they serve and specialize in. And then we say, go get a job. And they have to go and apply to a bunch of these sites and uh, they get a job uh, and they work about 20 hours a week for the whole two years that they're with us. Um, and that's where they get their, their supervised hours. And then uh, about, uh, uh, they get at least one hour every two weeks. Now it's actually going to be more uh, of one-to-one -one supervision from a BCBA that works at the agency. And then on campus, they get group supervision every week with our PhD level uh, professors. Cool. And so is it typically like the clinical, the clinical ABA that mm -hmm. your students are getting experience yeah, so in? Right now, all of the approved practicum sites are uh, sites that work with uh, individuals with autism and other developmental disorders, mm -hmm. uh, mostly children, but some of the agencies work with adults also, uh, mostly uh, home-based services, but some of the uh, sites have center-based programs, really high-quality center-based programs, um, and some of them also, one of them actually has a couple group homes that serve uh, adolescents and adults. So that's a really uh, great opportunity for students to be able to work there. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then of course, school, school-based consultation. So a lot of our, all of our practicum sites work with schools too. So our students will have the opportunity to either work in the, in the clinic, 
in home-based, school-based, uh, et cetera, with a variety of ages of individuals with autism. Uh, but the majority of the positions are with children. Now, of course, we're really interested in expanding outside of autism, right? ABA is not just autism. Um, and so we are uh, talking to a number of different agencies to look at other options as well. Um, uh, for example, we really want to uh, have a practicum site for folks to be able to work with individuals, uh, survivors of traumatic brain injury. Um, working with uh, elders would be really cool. And then also working in the um, uh, social services system with uh, kids uh, who, uh, who are uh, in the Department of Child and Family Services system. I think would be really valuable experience too. So we're, we're developing those, they don't exist yet. But Oh, and actually there is one placement uh, right now for uh, working with Michael Cameron in sort of organizational consulting, decision modeling type stuff. So that is the one sort of OBME thing that's not just autism, working directly with folks with autism. And well, I mean, I know it's cool too that something that California has that not a lot of other states have is this school experience. California is way ahead of the game in the school, the, in getting these behavior analysts in schools. When I was in Michigan, um, it's still a, eh, do we really want to let you into the school right. yeah. kind of a thing? And so that, I mean, that's a really great experience, um, especially teaching your students yeah. how to work with those individuals, because I've sat in on countless IEP meetings. I know how IEP meetings can go. Yeah. And when I, and because Michigan wasn't as, you know, accepting of behavior analysts and I wasn't always working in the school with, I was like their home or their clinic service mm -hmm. provider mm -hmm. and the parents invited me to the IEP. And so they looked at me coming in like, oh great, this behavior yeah, analyst is coming in and they're going to tell us to do all of this stuff. And I would actually like, if it was the first time meeting the school, I would literally just sit there. Mm -hmm. and listen and then they'd be like well what do you have to say and I was like <laughs> oh I'm just here if you have questions like I'm not I was like I'm just here if you have questions for me I'm not really and they were like oh so like building this building those skills to work with it's so important. is so yeah. important well and it's interesting though because like in California it's it can be somewhat contentious because the reason why behavior analysts are in schools is because parents uh, sued school districts over the last 20 years and they won enough times to where basically the school districts just say okay yeah <laughs> like we need you um, but but they don't they're not inviting us because they want us necessarily they're, it's because they kind of know that's the deal now um, and so it can be contentious but you know th that just like goes back to what we were saying earlier about just using our interpersonal skills and being just decent people and, and treating others with respect and kindness really goes a long ways. You know, there's no reason why we need to be at odds with people uh, from other disciplines or in school districts. Right, exactly. And I know that I was working in a, in a, it was a room for children with Down syndrome. And one thing that I always did was, or that, you know, how I tried to build some rapport with some of these outside fields was instead of me just coming in and being like, you need to try this and you need to do this and mm -hmm. like judging them and how they did it. I was like, Oh no, no, no. I was like, don't worry about it yet. I was like, I want to work with this student to make sure it works mm -hmm. before I ask you to do it. Because if mm -hmm. it doesn't work, I don't want to waste your time. And they were like, wait, what? <laughs> They're like, yeah. you're going to actually give me less work. You're going to take work <laughs> off of my plate. Yeah. I like, yeah. I was like, I want to make sure it actually works. And then you watch and make sure it's going to work for you in your classroom before this actually happens. And they're like, wow. But you're like, thank you. So it's, it's really all about like seeing, you know, not just going in and telling them what to do. It's really like showing them that it's showing them that something works. I have yeah. found gets so much more buy-in rather than telling them what to do yeah. exactly totally so, agree. <laughs> yep yes yeah, so no that's really great that california has this this option that yeah, a lot of other opinion. states don't always have um so how about the application and an interview process what does sure, yeah. what does that look like so the application process, I think, is fairly standard. It's an online application, and uh, applicants need to submit uh, sort of a letter of intent or a statement of purpose essay. 
Um, and then two letters of recommendation from former uh, um, supervisors or uh, professors. And then uh, they got to take the GRE score, which no, or GRE test, which of course nobody wants to do. Um, and a lot of ABA uh, master's programs don't require it. Um, we do at USC. It's just kind of part of grad school at USC. It's a you know sort of top tier research university. They have very high standards that we really, you know, I mean, we know as behavior analysts that standardized tests are not a very good assessment of performance. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, it, it does say something. So uh, yeah, so you got to take the GRE and you got to get at least an average or higher score. Uh, so about a 150, 152, 153 or so in verbal and um, quantitative. And then you've got to uh, have a GPA of at least 3.0 and uh, you submit all that stuff, you get it all in. Um, if you're an international applicant, you got to take the TOEFL, uh, which is an English language proficiency test. Um, and then you submit all that stuff. We get about 120 or 130 of those uh, applica applications per year. Um, out of that, there's maybe, I don't know, maybe I think about 40 or so that are uh, strong enough applications that we invite for an interview. And then the way the interviews work is if you want to, you can come in person, like if you're local. Uh, but if you're not, uh, we arrange a Skype interview. And honestly, that works just fine. People are not at a disadvantage who do Skype interviews. Um, we make sure that the interviewee has plenty of time to, to get everything out that they want to. Um, and we basically just uh, talk to the students about why they're passionate about behavior analysis, what contribution they want to make. <clears throat> like why, why is it worth it to spend two years of hard work and you know, uh, basically put your life on hold for two years for grad school, like what's the point basically, you know? And so what we're looking for are people who are flexible and curious, um, creative, teachable. Um, they don't have to already have everything figured out, but they've got to be um, enthusiastic and, and want to learn and they got to be flexible. So that's, and, and obviously, you know, they got to appear to be smart, <laughs> bright, <laughs> that helps. Um, and so then uh, out of all those interviews, uh, the faculty get together and we decide who we want to invite. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, we usually take about, uh, we end up having about 12 or so students per year. And are your, and are the applicants applying to work with a specific faculty member or is it just the program as a whole? No, it's the program as a whole. And once you get here, uh, you kind of shop around <coughs> for which, um, which faculty members you kind of feel like are the best fit for your interests. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, and then, you know, and you get paired up with, uh, with a faculty member who will supervise your, your work uh, in terms of your capstone or thesis project. Awesome. Yeah, and I know that sometimes, you know, coming in and having to pick a faculty member before you're even there can sometimes be a little bit daunting. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and kind of silly, because why would you have everything already figured out before you right. show up for your master's program? You know, that's part of the first year of the program is really learning a lot of different stuff, trying a lot of different stuff, and kind of figuring out what the best fit is for your interests. Mm -hmm. And so when are the applications due for you March, guys? March 1st. If, if students, we have kind of a late deadline. If students want an early decision, though, then the deadline for that is December 1st. And so the way that works is you get, if you get your whole application in before December 1st and you request an early decision, then we'll give you a decision in the month of December. And uh, basically, uh, the deal we're making with you is we're betting, uh, that we're betting on you by saying, like, yeah, okay, we do want to save a spot for you for sure. Uh, and so we give you that early decision and then you have to make the commitment to us if you want it, uh, if you take it, that, okay, you're going to, basically we're betting on each other early. Uh, and yeah, so if you know you want to come to us and we know we want a slot for you, then we'll, we'll accept you. And if, and if you accept our offer, then that's that. You get, you get the whole thing done uh, a, a few months ahead of time. And I can see how the early decision could be an option for some people, especially if they're shopping around and going to some of the other, some other schools as well. Sure. Because like you said, the March deadline can sometimes be, although it can be later than yeah. some of the other schools. So I could yeah. see how the early decision would be a good fit and some for some schools, people. For, just for people listening to your podcast that don't know this, some schools will really pressure you to make a decision quickly with them, you know, because they want to get you in, which, which I understand. I, I, I feel tempted to do that, uh, but we don't do that because we really want people making the best decision for them. Like we want a good fit, you know, so we don't want to pressure you into committing with us uh, if you're not 100% sure you want to be with us, you know, mm -hmm. so um, so yeah, just something to look out for. And I'm pretty sure that most programs, even though they tell you, oh no, you have to decide within one week or something, that's not really true. If you, if you tell them you need an extra week or two to make a decision, 
they're not going to just say, forget it then. If they want you, they'll, they'll hold the slot for you. Um, I mean, at some point, they're going to fill that slot with somebody else, obviously, you know, but, uh, but I, I think the ones that really push you like, okay, you only have one week to decide. My guess is that's not 100% the truth. But I don't know. So what can the students expect from, because I know we've talked to some, a Northern California school, mm-hmm. but you guys are in LA. Mm-hmm. And so what can students expect from Los Angeles and where you're located in LA yeah. and the uh, campus and what's around there? Yeah. So LA is really interesting. I mean, it's sort of a bag of contradictions uh, like people, like especially people from Northern California, they, they, you're raised to like hate Los Angeles if you're raised in the Bay Area, like San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but uh, you know, there's a reason why the real estate uh, value is so high in, in Southern California, and that's simple supply and demand. There's enough people that want to be there that you know th- that's why. It, and, and there's a reason for that. It's not like random. Um, the weather is basically perfect. Uh, there's maybe a couple weeks when it's too hot. Uh, it's never too cold. Maybe like, I mean, I, you know, it's just great weather. I think it's, I forget the number of days of sunshine per year, but it's huge. Um, You're like an hour. If you're in Los Angeles, you're less than an hour from the beaches, an hour from the mountains. You can go get snow in the winter. If you want it, you can go to the desert and go hang out in the desert, all of that within about an hour drive. So it's really geographically diverse. Um, and then cult- the cultural diversity is, you know, among the best in the United States. You know, there's every kind of food, every kind of music, every kind of entertainment you could possibly think of. Uh, so it's a, it's a great place to live. The downsides are the real estate value is high. So, yeah, that's going to be tough. Um, we, you, you will need to have a roommate, basically, if you're a grad student. Um, and then the traffic stinks, you know, so you, you, you have to kind of plan your life around where you're going to live and work and go to school so that you're not having to drive all the way across the LA metro area, uh, or you're going to be spending too much of your time in the car. Um, so you, but you know, we, we figure out how to live around that and make it work. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, so some people don't like the sort of Hollywood culture or whatever, like everyone that you meet in LA is not from there. They're all trying to be a famous movie star or something, you know, like if you go out to dinner, your waitress or your waiter is basically trying to be a, a, an actor and failing, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I don't really care. You know, people are people. You just be a decent human, do stuff that you love and that you care about and um, enjoy the good weather. I mean, that's the main thing. Um, and, and so then uh, the, the campus is a really, really nice campus. It's a, a big, beautiful, old campus um, that's like a city in itself. Uh, we have our own like Target grocery store, our own Trader Joe's grocery store, our own police department, like everything. You know, it's like a huge, uh, a huge, beautiful campus. It's really nice. Lots and lots of support for the students on campus. There's a writing center that you can take one writing assignment to per week, and they'll give you one-on-one tutoring on how to make it better. So if you're if you're having a tough time learning the writing skills, you go to the writing center. They'll give you one-on-one tutoring every week for free, uh, and you just have to get there a few days before your papers actually do. And they'll tutor you uh, and, and really build up your skills and people really benefit from that. So um, I would say like the overall quality of life is really good. Our students seem like uh, they're stressed in the sense of working really hard and taking it seriously, but also like they're smiling a lot and they're having fun and they're having like the adventure of their lives, you know, so it's, it's fun to watch uh, the students have a great experience. And I mean, I like that you use the desert as a selling point. <laughs> I think you, I think you're the first one to use the desert as a selling point. Well, it's My- cool, man. Like listeners, <laughs> do a Google Images search for Joshua Tree National Park. It's like one of the beautiful, most beautiful places on the planet. Just like stark desert beauty. It's right there, an hour or two outside LA. So. And I mean, I can't even say anything because I've actually never been to California. So um, yeah, I can't even, I can't speak. So I need to, yeah, I do. I need to do some more traveling. I, um, Florida has kind of made me, I'm not a sun or heat Mm. person as you can oh i am like as you can tell i spend so much time outside in the sun (laughs) with my pasty white skin um but i am a ginger so um i try to avoid it as much as possible um but no i my selling point that you said would be trader joe's because (laughs) (laughs) because the closest trader joe's to me is an hour away 
Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. It's in Orlando and it's an hour away. And I used to make that drive almost once oh, a week goodness. just That's so I really could go funny. to Trader Joe's and Costco. Yeah. There are, Trader Joe's so. is on every street corner in Los Angeles. It's just, it's a great store. For folks who don't know what it is, just an awesome grocery store. Really good food and good prices, actually. And yeah, it's, it's great. There's currently a meme going around on Instagram about how everything at Trader Joe's is fire. Like you can't get anything <laughs> bad at Trader Joe's. And I think that that's probably almost true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they Everything have. Everything is really curated. They yeah. don't have just any miscellaneous stuff. Like every single item in the store has been handpicked by somebody. Yep. And I mean, they have cookie butter and cookie butter cheesecake and mm. they have three buck chucks and oh, yeah. they have, yeah, you can't go wrong with the $3 bottle of wine. So, <laughs> yeah, it's actually oh not that bad it's really not bad like that's the surprising part um but yeah every, i i love trader joe's so that would be my selling point for sure um well and probably like the the most important selling point for our program i think well i don't know i don't know if it's the most important but it's really important to me is uh the student culture so like we when we founded this program our goal was to create uh, a model for the type of change we want to bring about to the outside world and so we thought like, well, what do we really care about uh, in terms of making the world a better place? We care about kindness. We care about respect. We care about creativity. We care about enthusiasm, enthusiasm and innovation. And so we said, well, what would it be like for us to create a graduate program where that actually was how we interacted with each other all the time? Like that's what, those are our values that we're trying to move towards in everything that we do. And, um, and somehow it just kind of worked and the students are carrying that forward and, uh, really uh they created a culture and they maintain a culture that's really positive and really supportive um they they get together and help each other out and and prop each other up hold each other up encourage each other um we teach we have a pretty dynamic uh sort of pedagogy that's a fancy word uh but <laughs> our way that's of, a gre word right there. yeah right <laughs> but our, our way of teaching our classes is pretty intensive and it require it involves students participating every time every class meeting mm -hmm. uh, and so we actually use behavioral principles and procedures to actually teach our classes so we do a lot of behavioral skills training in class mm -hmm. uh, so we read the articles we talk about stuff then we actually model it and role play how to actually do it for real in class and at first people feel really like nervous about that the first few weeks. And then by the end, they're all cheering for each other and they're having fun and feeling so confident and so proud that they actually are learning how to do stuff for real, not just sort of talk about it in an ivory tower way. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's a really fun, uh, supportive and kind and respectful learning environment. Well, I mean, and I think that I'm biased. Like I've said before, I went to a brick and mortar program and when I was supervising, I tried to push my students to a brick and mortar program but it's it's such a different and more intensive learning process um than i've seen from this is you know from my limited experience with on with online programs and i, mm -hmm. I hate to overgeneralize and say sure, because yeah. it's not because that's not every online program it's not sure. there are very very good quality online programs that are incorporating all of this mm -hmm. um, but I am still biased to brick and mortar programs and mm -hmm. yeah, it takes a lot of commitment, but you're going to get, there's something different that you get from a brick and mortar program mm -hmm. and you get mm -hmm. from an online program. And yeah. my wife and I just celebrated our 10 year wedding anniversary yesterday. Congrats. Thank you. And she gave, this will be on topic. I promise. She gave me, uh, I a, honestly, yeah. like I said, they said I can She's do like, whatever, whatever I want with this podcast. <laughs> it can be off topic. Well, so she gave me a gift. Uh, that's this journal. And on the cover of the journal, it says, uh, life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. And the brick and mortar, real life, small classroom, small professor to student ratio experience takes you out of your comfort zone and doesn't provide an opportunity to hide from real intensive learning experiences. Um, and so we don't push people in any kind of aversive or pressure or bullying type of way, but we do create a context for them to get out of their comfort zone. And, you know, uh, and I've heard twice now from two different students who describe, and they don't know each other that each other said this, but um, they came to me and said, when I started this program, I thought I was an introvert and I couldn't public speak. I couldn't participate and I didn't, I didn't have a voice basically in front of other people. And they said, uh, this program has changed my life. 
and my family has noticed it and my family has described it to me. Um, and I am someone who has a voice now and I know that I can just talk and say what I need to say. And, and to me, like that's the greatest reward a professor can possibly have. So if, if we have one small piece in that, I'm so happy. And that's, yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, we are behavior analysts, so we like to talk in our own voices um, <laughs> um, as well. So a lot of us, uh, me, okay, I'm talking about me. <laughs> no, it's all of us. No, it's all of us. Yeah. Um, but I mean, no, that's, that's great. And I, I know that it's so funny because even like I try not to compare myself to other people because I know that that's horrible to do. But I mean, I even look at my, co like my lab mates that I had in grad school and like where mm -hmm. they are mm -hmm. and what they're doing. And then I'm like, Oh, well, what am I really doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, but again, it's what I'm doing is different and it's really where, I, I liked my experience in grad school with the brick and mortar program because as much as like it can, as much as, as hard as it is, it's very hard. I'm not going to say it's not hard because it was hard, but at the same point, I came out of that program knowing that I, I knew what I was talking about and yeah. I could apply it to so many different areas yeah. and that now like we were talking about earlier like my focus now it's and it kind of always has been but my focus now is dissemination like i love teaching i took over our practicum students that we have at aba tech and i love teaching and you know my supervisor allison has commended me she goes i just love what you're doing with the practicum students mm. she goes it's so cool to see how you interact with them and how you get them to really like answer questions and this and that and just like you were saying it's but I learned that from from Jessica from yeah. my faculty member at Western and so I mean you're fostering that within your program so yeah, it's like you're not cool. only you're not only creating like these behavior analysts you're also teaching them and showing them the skills to then do it to the next generation of a behavior. Yeah, that's analyst. our goal. That's our mission. Yes. So where are some of your students going? Uh, when they're done with us, you mean? Yeah, when you're done. So we're, we're a really new program. Leave. We're a really new program. We just uh, graduated our first cohort uh, this last May. Um, and so, yeah, really exciting. Uh, and we placed one student, uh, Vinny Camp. Campbell in uh, uh, Tom Higby's PhD program in behavior analysis at okay. Utah State. Yeah. So we're really proud of him uh, and he's doing a great job there, doing good research, good work. Um, and then our other students are doing really cool stuff, getting promoted in the agencies that they work for, uh, you know, getting promoted into supervisor positions, staff trainer positions, things like that. Um, I know California kind of has a tendency to hold yeah because there's yeah. so many agencies in california it's nuts yeah there's so many jobs out here and that, and that's actually another benefit of coming to grad school in in, in southern california is you just get exposed to hundreds of agencies and mm -hmm. it's just it's a great place to be a behavior analyst there's so yeah. many jobs uh um but yeah so they're so they're just keeping doing good work you know and then some of them are continuing to do research and uh yeah so they're they're doing good moving forward with their careers I'm really yep. proud of them that's awesome. And I know we kind of talked about what makes USC's program unique, but is there anything else that you want to say about yeah. the program to yeah, really for sure. hit it home? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that makes us unique, I think, is that we are stepping out on a limb a little bit by being willing to really look at what the sort of the next, what we believe the next evolution of the science of behavior analysis is going to be. So uh, that sounds kind of lofty and hoity-toity, but all I mean by that is we're saying with open arms and open eyes, like what, what's new, what's next, and how can we push the envelope of, of our science of behavior analysis to be a more comprehensive science by addressing a larger array of topics than we've done in the past, by addressing human behavior that's more complex and frankly more confusing than what's been done in the past. And so, um, so for one example of that is all the students in our program take a, an advanced theory course with me where you learn about acceptance and commitment training and how to do that in the context of uh, ABA services. 
Um, and it's, it's really cool because it's, it's, it's a way for behavior analysts to remain within our science and, and retain our scientific rigor, but address questions like this, like what do we really care about in life? What do we really value? You know, what do we want our lives to be about as parents, as colleagues, as behavior analysts? And that's not just some philosophical mentalistic conversation. There's a science around that. There's a whole bunch of research on that in the acceptance and commitment training literature. And, it, and, and what, what happens when you bring that stuff to bear on what we do on a day-to-day -day basis is pretty incredible. I mean, it changes lives. Uh, we, get, we see big, big behavior change in positive ways uh, when we don't just do direct acting contingencies, like, yeah, reinforce the behavior, obviously, right? Set goals, that stuff's important. You can't get rid of that. But then when you add in uh, really what's uh, a higher order verbal behavior intervention, but what, by verbal behavior, I don't mean like the basic verbal operants with kids with autism. I mean the verbal behavior that I'm engaging in right now as I talk to you, <laughs> and frankly, the verbal behavior you're engaging right now as a listener, right? You're engaging mm -hmm. in a bunch of private events, and that stuff matters to human complexity. It matters a great deal to parents of kids with autism, to you and I when we show up to work. How are we going to perform? What contribution are we going to make? Um, and so the, the literature on acceptance and commitment training, I mean, by the way, there's like more than 300 published randomized controlled trials showing that it's effective for things like depression, anxiety, chronic pain, all different areas of application, including OBM. There's some really cool ACT OBM research. Um, and so- I'm pretty impressed. My, a couple of my IPT students are working on like social skills and I have my air quotes going okay, because you okay. can't see me in like a business setting. Yeah, like this awesome. kind of yeah, they're That's working so cool. on creating a seat, a continuing education course for. That's such a that good idea. That's because, so needed, right? Yeah, those. Yeah, exactly. So yes, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no. So just the bigger picture here is what we're trying to do at USC is really um, is is be as flexible and courageous as possible in terms of expanding the horizons of the science of behavior analysis, while also retaining our hardcore behavior analytic foundation. So we're not going to compromise on our, our basic philosophy of behavior analysis and our, our basic principles, uh, but we are going to stretch those uh, to accommodating just more stuff that matters in, in human affairs. Uh, so yeah, that, that's what we do, and we do it with kindness, and we do it with respect and dignity, and uh, we treat each other well, and we get stuff done. <laughs> So, um, and research opportunities. So I should have mentioned that too. All of our students go to conferences, at least one or two conferences. They're all presenting posters, they're giving talks, um, they're publishing data. Um, so that's something unique about us too, is you get a lot of mentorship and supervision on research from people who have an established track record of publishing research. So that's, um, I think, something that's also a, a big plus and a reason to come to our program. And I know that you said that you have, you, these might seem like lofty goals, but at the same time, our presence in the developmental disabilities realm was, it seemed lofty 30 years ago as well. That's so a really it, good point. There's it seemed no lofty, but we need those people taking the risks to get it out there because, and we need a lot of people doing it because yeah. as much as one person can do, we need multiple people taking I these totally risks. I totally agree. I totally agree. And we need, I mean, Skinner's vision from the beginning, for, you know, from his book, Science and Human Behavior, uh, was a comprehensive science addressing all of human behavior. It was not uh, to keep ourselves in a little pigeonhole where we only talk to each other and talk to ourselves. Uh, that, that pun was not intended, pigeonhole, but that's kind of <laughs> where we are, right? <laughs> um, we, yeah, we have been, we have blinders right? on our field yeah. right now. And that was not Skinner's dream. That was not the point. The point of the science of behavior analysis was comprehensive application, change the world. And to do that, we got to reach out. We got to look outward and we got to open our arms and we got to be uh, brave with that and flexible and thoughtful and values driven, you know? So I don't know, that's, that's where we're going. That's what we're trying to do. And so far it's working. Yeah. And I mean, one of my favorite books that I've ever read in, in general and all the books that I've read is Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And it's one of my favorite books. And from, for outside people to read it, I can see how it seems absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Um, so I might not be suggesting that to like a ton of people to read, but, um, but if you're in the field and yeah. you haven't read Beyond Freedom and Dignity, like you need to read Beyond Freedom and Dignity because 
it like I've read science and human behavior. I, I, I think I have every single, no, I do have every single one of Skinner's books. Uh-huh. Um, I have every single one. I <laughs> like, I have made sure I read them all just even how hard they are to, some of them are to read yeah. the cumulative yes. record. Oh, cumulative record is hard to read, but I did it. Yeah. Um, but beyond, but beyond freedom and dignity is one of my favorite, favorite books of all time. Me and too. it's really just like motivates me to really start pushing the envelope and we need those people. So it's good to hear that we have programs out there that are pushing the envelope and want to continue to do so. Yeah, we're trying, we're trying so far. And the the cool thing about it is, man, if we just make ourselves useful and we use kindness and respect, uh, people want to invite us. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We just have to show up with, with, uh, and make a contribution in a useful way. And, um, and it, it seems like that usually works. And, it, and we, we need to offer something that inspires people, you know, not just here's the research, do it because I said so. Right. We need to uh, connect with people in a way that inspires them. And um, yeah, so that's important stuff. No, that's awesome. Well, have we missed anything? Uh, no, I think, I mean, I could talk on and on about my program for years, but yeah, I think, I think we hit the main points, research, uh, cutting edge, uh, mm-hmm. act, RFT, cutting edge topics, uh, lots of mentorship, really small student to staff, ra- uh, student to professor ratios, uh, lots of personal attention. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what we do. Yeah. And as always, I always include the website, but mm. I will, you're very, informative and very easy to get in contact with so are you the best contact for students yeah to reach out yeah, to people you? yeah if people have interest in the program they should email me direct uh, directly right. so my email address is j t a r b o x at usc.edu and to find uh, our program's webpage i think if you just google usc aba and then you scroll down past all the ads <laughs> you'll uh, you'll you'll find our program quickly Yep. And I'll make sure to include your email as well in the description, just in case anybody does want to reach out. Um, But thank you for sitting down with me and talking. Yeah, no problem. It's It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the university series. As always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operant innovations at abatechnologies.com.